0: Cells. 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 Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked.
1: Interlinked.
0: What's it
2: like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked.
0: You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. And uh, today we are joined by film historian and Blade Runner guru, Paul M. Salmon. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Jamie. Hi, everybody. How are you? i yeah, your co-host, of course. I'm so sorry. And hello. everyone who's listening, hello.
0: Hello. So we are here to... Further, our celebrations of the 40th anniversary of Blade Runner, which, of course, came out in 1982. Uh, We've been talking, obviously talking about uh, this monumental occasion all year long, and we thought it was appropriate to bring back Paul Salmon to our show. Just to catch up, it's been uh, like we were talking about earlier before we started recording. It's been three years since you've been on the show. There's a lot that's been going on in kind of Blade Runner fandom. A lot of things announced, a lot of talk. Um, but also just a lot of celebration and a lot of people talking about how the original film has continued to linger and has continued to be relevant. And um, what? Who better to talk about that than you?
1: Well, thank you. Uh, yes, uh, it's well. First, you mentioned the 40 year mark. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, I was a young man, uh, or let's just say younger. Uh, when I was covering that for a number of publications and also starting my film career, which people often seem to forget that I actually had a 35-year career in the industry as well. Um, But uh, it's both heartening to see its uh, legacy and how it's endured uh, 2019, but also it's uh, fairly depressing to see how its central concerns are more relevant than ever. And of course, you know, we're talking environmental destruction, overcrowding, pollution, genetic manipulation, corporate dominance, uh, the erosion of uh, empathy, uh, you know, stratification of the class systems, all of that is in the original Blade Runner. And brilliantly carried on, I might add, uh, by uh, one of the few sequels that, in my opinion, uh, are very close to matching the original, which is 2049. I'm a huge fan of that as well. I haven't had a chance to speak about that too often in public, but uh, you know, props to those guys. But yes, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing how this uh, initial commercial flop uh, uh, has been so influential and uh you know it's still endorsed and you know bottom line it's a good movie
2: it is a good movie you know but before we kind of get into a lot of the themes that you just brought up in terms of how it's aged and and where things are now uh just because it's been a while since you've been on the show and people might have people might know you only through future noir which again if, if people haven't read that uh, obviously if you're listening to the blade runner podcast you should have only read that by now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully hopefully i'm assuming you have if you haven't go go pause and go buy that but uh you've done a lot outside of future noir and i think the way that you got onto the set and blade runner is also kind of interesting so can you give us just a little snapshot into where you were in the late in the early 1980s in your career and how you kind of came into this whole blade runner fold
1: well uh snapshots as you well know and anyone who's listened to me speak are almost impossible <laughs> I, I tend to speak in encyclopedia volumes uh, which in psychology is known as logorrhea, or an inability to shut up, but I'll try. Um, b- briefly, uh, the first film I worked on was in 1971, and it was a film called uh, Silent Running, directed by Douglas Trumbull, starring Bruce Stern, and about the last forests uh, on Earth uh, being in orbit, because all of Earth had been concreted over, and there are three uh, anthropomorphic robots in that called Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And when I was in college, Doug Trumbull and uh, the producer of that film uh, came to my school and I didn't have a film school. Believe me, Uh, there were no film classes where I was. In fact, there were it was interesting. There were only very few of us that were interested in in cinema. Um, But anyway, uh, Doug came down and uh, after his talk, which was to only maybe a classroom of 10 people, i came up to him and i said you know wow i really liked your split scan work and you know i'm really familiar with all of the problems you went through on the andromeda strain and he stared at me and you have to remember that this is pre-internet and everything that i had learned i picked up from reading and uh gossiping with people and uh he said wow you're you're, you're fairly knowledgeable and i said oh well i'm just enthusiastic i love films and i know who you are and he told me that they were shooting this movie called Silent Running, and he invited me up to work for free. Uh, and I wound up being on that for a few days. And one of my jobs was suiting up Huey, Dewey and Louie and uh, got to meet Bruce Stern, who was the uh, star of that film. And Bruce remembered me decades later. We also worked many years later on a film called World Gone Wild in Arizona. Bruce and I did. Um, but uh That was my first exposure to the um, realities of on-set life. And uh, I was young and fascinated and uh, kind of like circled around it. But by the late 70s, I had been working for Walt Disney in 1978, uh, promoting the Black Hole. And I was one of the first wave of what they now, uh, at least in marketing circles called genre marketers and I, I i and people like uh charles charles Lippincott charlie and jeff walker and a couple of but craig miller uh we were all in the first wave of people who targeted fandom in terms of breaking news and hyping uh films that were you know things like little movies like alien <laughs> star wars uh you know pictures like that in my case later conan the Barbarian. I, I did a lot of work in that field for varying studios. In any event, I was with Disney for about a year on that film and then I uh, segregated over to Universal because I had been uh, furiously writing as a freelancer throughout the 1970s to support myself and my who the woman who became my wife. And who still is, thank you, 47 and a half years later. Um, congratulations. Well, that's awesome. Well, I, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I that. wanted to say yeah, congratulations yeah, as well. That's fantastic, well, Paul. Wow. Well, I don't know. Congratulations is an odd term. But, you know, for those of you who I realize that's uh, everyone's life is different and we live in a very fragmented society, but there's nothing like knowing another person as intimately as I and my wife does for almost half a century, and still loving each other. That's pretty amazing. I just find find myself, well, I'm very fortunate in so many ways. And that bleeds right into uh, being uh, assigned by Cinefantastique magazine, uh, which was very prominent in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, as sort of the gold standard of uh, film journalism about science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And uh, that and the Los Angeles Times uh, asked me to go to Spain to write about Conan the Barbarian. And so by now I've already had some, you know, I'm doing, I'm actually doing, working in two arenas as both a, a freelance writer and as someone who's an occasional studio employee. And um, went to Spain, got to meet Arnold, uh, was a, a dyed-in-the-wool Robert E. Howard fan. First Conan story I read was in 1959, which is in Red Nail, called Red Nails. Um, and, uh, that was in a uh, Gnome press edition, uh, uh called the, uh, sort of ponent. And anyway, um, got to see all that, wrote all about that, made some buzz about that. And then got hired by universal to promote that initially, but then found myself uh, rapidly being given a number of other assignments. Now we're talking about 81. And this is at the very beginning of eighty-one. Now, Blade Runner is overlapping with this because this is why I talk in encyclopedias. Because even though I'm trying to give you the short version, this is all interlinked. To quote twenty forty-nine, interlinked, interlinked. Um, that uh, I had met Philip K. Dick as a fan of Phil Dick. Also, I wrote, uh, read one of his short stories in I think the late fifties called "The Father Thing," which is a very atypical. Dickie and short story, horror really. Um, but uh, always fascinated with him. Met him for the first time in 73 at a, a talk he gave at uh, Fullerton College, Cal State Fullerton. Uh, did the same thing I did with Doug Trumbull, came up afterwards, introduced myself. Uh, then all of a sudden, I started to find myself suddenly sort of meeting people who were involved in the nascent convention international, national network. And uh, I kept going to conventions and running into Phil. He, he was agoraphobic. He didn't get out much, but he did occasionally. And um, by the late 1970s, he and I were edging into a friendship as opposed to just an acquaintanceship. So I was already attuned to the fact that Blade Runner, uh, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, Phil's novel, on which 2019 is based, had been optioned, dropped, optioned, dropped, And got this mostly through Phil. And um, so all of this is going on simultaneously. And so when it finally all comes together with, uh, I started really writing about Blade Runner for the first time in 1980 under a number of pseudonyms uh, because I was so prolific that a lot of the magazines I was writing for would have two or three of my articles. So I was like doing both. I'm working at Universal on Conan and I'm also really tracking Blade Runner. And it just so happens that this all comes together at the same time. And I literally was wearing a coat and tie during the day at Universal Studios. And I was in the Black Tower, as they call it, for a while. That's the, you know, the sort of the executives building and uh, kind of an up and coming junior vice president of publicity. And... um, Heard about Blade Runner, pitched a couple of other publications and said, you know, I want to do something that really hasn't been done before. And they said, what now you would call it being embedded. And I say, you know, I've got this day job. <laughs> they said, yeah, we know. How are you going to do this? And I said, well, look, number one, I don't do coke. So you don't have to worry about me like coking out on you because my metabolism is already cranked up to 11. Believe me, I don't <laughs> need fast. I don't need fast drugs. Um but I said, uh, I have such a passion for the book and for Phil and for cinema and, of course, Alien, Bradley Scott's uh, mega hit, and also The Duelist, which I'd seen. I'm, I'm stone-cold cinephile, still am, or synast, synast, as we say these days. Um, so all of that came together. And uh, so while I'm sort of covering Conan uh, I'm, and, and pitching it, I'm simultaneously being over the hill at night and whenever I can get away on the set of Blade Runner, but I'm there in pre-production. When Ridley first gets signed, I walk into Michael Dealey's office, carrying a day bag or what passed with that. I think it was maybe a briefcase. And uh, I had a whole bunch of my writing in it. And I I had made an arrangement through his assistant uh, to talk to him about covering the making of Blade Runner. And they didn't know who I was uh, and, uh, but, They said, sure, you know, okay. well, you sound like, you know, the industry and and you're an an accredited uh, film journalist. And I said, yeah. So I walked into Michael's desk and he goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, first, here's who I am. And I opened up the briefcase and I dumped all of these magazines on his desk, and they all had my cover stories on them. And he goes, Oh, you know, and I think he liked my youthful chutzpah, you know, chutzpah. And uh, so he said, We had a talk, and he said, well, What do you want to do? And I said, Well, I want to actually cover everything. He looks at me and he goes, Everything? And then he goes, Yeah. And I said, But let me tell you up front I said, I'm not a headhunter. I said, I'm well aware of this trend of what was then called the new journalism, Tom Wolfe and all those people where the journalist becomes a star. I said, I'm not the star. It's this production that's the star. And he kind of reacted to that positively. And he said, "Were you going to tell tales. And I said, in terms of having an agenda, no, but I'm going to be as balanced as I can without being in court for the rest of my life. (laughs) He (laughs) laughed at that. And he introduced me to Ridley. And Ridley had just literally been hired. And uh, Ridley and I spent about three hours talking that very first meeting about everything except Blade Runner. And I realized that I was with a man uh, who was incredibly focused, incredibly talented and a world class filmmaker who also happens to be a huge film buff. People don't give Ridley enough credit for that. He really does. He's not one of these guys who's just doing a job. He loves movies, you know, and he knows them quite well. And we got off into a whole thing about film noir that didn't really venture into the noir aspects of what became Blade Runner. So that's how it all started so i was literally during the day at universal coat and tie, and then whenever i couldn't i used to sneak off a lot all the time they started getting mad at me they'd go where's salmon you know he's over at warner brothers why is he over at warner brothers you know that kind of thing <laughs> um but i spent I spent a lot of time on that production, uh, virtually every day, really, when you want to get down to it, because we were so close to each other. So that is how it started. And um, then when it came out, it flopped. I was just so. At first, I was as exhausted as everyone else had been on that movie, because that movie really beat everyone to their knees. It was a very brutal shoot on many levels. And So when it came out and it died, I went, oh, this is too bad. Oh, well. And then maybe within a week, two weeks, I went back and saw it again and again. And understand, I'd already seen four or five versions of it as it was being cut during post-production. And I said, no, wait a minute. You know, Paul, your initial instinct was correct. This is a gem. And it really needs to be maintained. And people need to hear about it. And so thus began, you know, what turned out to be a 40-year adventure on this one particular title
0: so let me ask you uh as we talk about the 40 years and of course there's been um events happening all over the country i know yourself and uh another friend of ours charlie de la Zurica, you guys were all in savannah right with
1: um uh, no i unfortunately i was not invited
0: Oh, I thought you were there for whatever reason.
1: No, no, but uh, no. They it was it was a nice uh, event. That was a red carpet event, and very rightly so. They invited people who were actually um, uh, uh, participants in the making of the film, Got and it. that was jo- Joanna Cassidy, of course. Zora Michael Kaplan, one of the costume designers, wardrobe. Charlie DeLazzarika, of course, final cut producer and director, and. Producer of Dangerous Days, that wonderful documentary, the definitive Blade Runner documentary, mm. and then um, uh, let me see, uh, David Snyder, of course, uh, the art director on Blade Runner. So you know, and I've seen that online, uh, but they, yeah. they offered me a they offered me a press pass, and uh, I I laughed and I said, folks, I haven't done press for. 30, 35 years, uh, but that was, you know, who cares? I mean, it was a, yeah. it was a great, it was a great event and it did quite well for them. So I'm very happy. for
0: them. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, but it leads me to my question again, we're 40 years in what, what does anything continue to surprise you as you continue to talk about this film, which you've been talking about for a long time? Are you as excited about it now as you were then? Um, and not also within the context of talking to people who maybe haven't spoken to you before and people who are reading your book, like what keeps it fresh for you?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I am so irrevocably tied to this motion picture, at least in one pop culture channel, because I actually swim in a lot of different pools and that's something that people as a whole do not realize. Um, for instance, I mentioned Conan the Barbarian. I mean, I did a book called Conan the Phenomenon for Dark Horse Books, which is the whole history of the Conan character. And you say that to a Blade Runner fan and they go, what? You know? And uh, then I say, well, you know, I was a guy who did uh, Return of the Living Dead and, you know, and, and made uh, Orion Pictures actually give it a production. I mean, a publicity budget because they were just going to throw it away. And people go, what? And then I say, well, you know, I was on Dune for a year and a half. David Lynch's did. It. And they go, what? So, yeah, you know, I mean, it's Dune is another one that's followed me, like RoboCop, which I also worked on, Starship Troopers, which are off. I'm in, actually, for 10 seconds. Uh, so what's interesting about Blade Runner is I, I saw its idiosyncratic originality at the beginning. And I was also very excited by the fact that not only was it at the time a ground bake, a groundbreaking visual aberration in terms of the sheer amount of visual information that poured off the screen and it let the viewer discover that 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 world building on his, his you know on their own they had to use their optics and their brains and aural facilities to process all this information that was coming at you in a very non-traditional manner for that period of time. So in that sense, as a film historian, I'm always very excited on how influential that film has been. Personally, um, it was, uh, I was just so affected by the emotional battering of a lot of the people who were involved in that making of the movie I was right there watching people being screamed at you know fired and quitting and you know and and having so there was uh, and also at the same time seeing these just overwhelming moments of beauty like you know listening to Rutger do that final speech and tears in the rain and you know, and uh, uh, watching, uh, you know, the T-shirt war where the crew hated Ridley so much, certain factions that they had a nasty T-shirt, and then he made his own nasty T-shirt, you know, and and all of that is background noise to the actual film itself for me. It's a generational rediscovery. I find that fascinating because I talk to people, I'm a talker, and as you might have noticed, <laughs> um, but I, I'm always, uh, I'm a social person. And uh, when I'm out and about, which I tend to be, I, I travel a lot. Uh, I'm very blessed in that respect, um, both on the ground and in higher uh, altitudes, shall we say. And I'm always asking, do you know about this movie Blade Runner? And it just surprises me. It's always being rediscovered or discovered for the first time. So it's like it's never gone away from me. And yes, it has been um, an opportunity. For instance, David Snyder and I have gotten closer over the past few years than originally we once were. And um, Tom Southwell, uh, who I've known for a while, who is a great guy. And, you know, uh, then there are others like Joanna Cassidy, who who has been a pal since 1981. You know when she first came on during the final you know weeks of shooting i mean the zora stuff was all shot towards the end of production when things were really tense and uh she and i are still friends and sean and i talked uh, back in june i think it was and uh she's on, she's on a cruise now for tcm uh, turner classic movies uh, and she's talking about blade runner you know so i just saw it's a clip just, of that today oh did you yeah yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. props to her props to her i'm glad sean is uh, is out there um So for me, I mean, uh, the original agenda was, again, for me to cover the production, the real making, the genuine construction of a major motion picture, warts and all. And what's what's been endlessly fascinating to me is that I've never reached bottom with that. I keep, you know, Vicki Rhodes, who was like the DGA trainee on that film. Uh, Vicki and I have connected again, and I, haven't, I hadn't really seen her in decades. And uh, she has great stories that I'd forgotten about how Harrison uh, used to tease her all the time. And, and Harrison's a very funny guy, by the way, Harrison Ford. Uh, he's got this dry sense of humor, but he also loves practical jokes, not ones that are mean, that are just funny. He's a, he's a very sharp man, Harrison. And, uh, you know, Katie Haber and I are almost like brother and sister, Catherine Haber, the production executive. So this is this is still a living thing to me. Unfortunately, 2019, which is the last time we all saw each other in the flesh, so to speak. Um, And by the way, a big shout out to that wonderful event you guys staged in November of 2019 in Los Angeles, uh, celebrating uh, the film's 2019, you know, date set uh that was wonderful uh joanna and charlie and i uh who are all guests of your event there we're all talking about what a wonderful time we had and the screening that you guys had and what was that building what was the name of that building it was the
2: the former la stock exchange which is oh. now become a club yeah it's called the oh exchange. yeah
1: yeah the exchange yeah it was it was wonderful venue because you know it was it had this weird gothic slash deco you know um, architecture and I remember sitting up in the balcony and and watching the tears and rain speech uh, uh, you know and being reflected off of that bizarre baroque ceiling that's up there there's all it's a very if you ever looked up to the ceiling of that building where, you, where the screening was there it has all these interlacing beams and you know reflective surfaces and whatnot and it was like this kaleidoscope of color and I'm going wow you know how many I've there's honestly there's maybe Maybe Terry Rawlings, the original editor of Blade Runner, has seen that film more times than I. And I know Charlie De Lazarica is a close second, but I, without boasting, I don't think there's anyone who's seen that film as many times as I have. I know every frame of that motion picture, and I can still go and sit and be transported, you know. Uh, with the with the extra knowledge of knowing that oh that's the scene where oh that, oh that's the scene where oh that's the scene where everybody was happy you know <laughs> and uh, so forth and so on and Joe Joe Turkel uh, Joe Turkel actually um, you know getting uh, Joe was very angry with me for years because in the first edition of uh, Future Noir um, I spent a year trying to track him down and he had essentially retired and he had so retired that no one could find him and the buzz was that he was dead. And uh, I put that in the first edition of the book with a caveat that said, I was, I tried to find him. I couldn't find him. The buzz is, is he's dead, but I can't verify that. Oh, he was so angry about that. Oh, I'm not dead. What do you mean I'm dead? And this whole Brooklyn side came out. But uh, for years, that was a bone of contention. But uh, towards the end of his life, uh, he and I became uh, uh, friends again, and he gave me quite a lot, quite a lot of information. So, you know, I mean, I go to such lengths on this because um, it just it just doesn't go away, and I'm not tired of it. Um, I I love the fact that it inspires people. I mean, you know, you guys, uh, and by shoulder of Orion is what I mean by you guys. Um, I, I love having these intelligent insightful, in-depth conversations about this motion picture, as opposed to the little sound bites that I have to do when I do other podcasts or, you know, or or appearances, because I do a lot of those. And um, this film is an endless well in many respects, which is why I was so excited and pleased and staggered by the depth of 2049, because it, in its own way, that is not only a worthy continuation and a very logical successor to 2019, but it deepens the story in many ways. And uh, But taking the original themes and subtly playing with them. And, you know, man, and it's not just an intellectual thing. I mean, it's a very emotional. Both of those films are very emotional if you let yourself... Just stop thinking about what's going on. You know, why is it slow? You know, why is it not like having a, you know, where where are the Avengers and why isn't Ultron showing up and blowing stuff up? And where's some bad CGI battles and, you know, where a lot of people's mindsets are today, unfortunately. So, yeah, that's why.
2: I, I think we should clear some space at some point tonight to talk about 2049 to get some of your thoughts Absolutely. on it, because I, I think that's something that we would love to to get more into. But before before we do, and kind of as a way of getting towards that, you know, you're mentioning uh, Mr. Turkel, who of course was a, a pretty recent loss uh, for the Blade Runner community. So uh, part of yeah. what made 2019's event so special to me was it was in the immediate wake of of course Roy Batty's death. Uh, rucker hower who had died a few months before that and that was that was very powerful um and i guess i'm saying this because there continue to be emotional resonances with this movie with generations of film goers who have connections to it and for jamie and i you know we talk about this movie every other week you know we do bi-weekly episodes and we're very very much not out of content to talk about yet And a major reason for that is because so many people write to us with personal things that mean something to them, with themes that poke out to them that they can't get out of their head, with characters who imprint themselves. And uh, and I'm wondering, for you, as somebody who's so closely connected to the movie, what kind of conversations are you having now about Blade Runner? And are they similar to conversations you've had in the past, or have things changed as the years have gone on?
1: Well, I suppose to broadly say yes and no. Um, Yes, the conversation is very similar to what a handful of people and I were having originally when the film first, Came out and then started to gain traction, and through video, and then through um, cable TV, and then through the discovery of the work, print and uh, you know so forth and so on. Uh, in the first decade after its release, yes, many of us who were in that small community at the time were all talking about what the same things people are talking about today, and there are very many emotional. Uh, 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 Points that are studded throughout that that you can prick your finger on, or, or your soul can snag on the bits and pieces of Blade Runner, and there's so many different. It's a, thematically, it's a very rich field, and emotionally, though, for me, as someone who is now not the younger Paul of 40 years ago, uh, I have had to personally suffer through the passing of people like Rutger and people like well you know, Sid Need, who was a very good friend of mine. And in fact, uh, just a few months before Sid, Sid passed, he and I and Roger, uh, his uh, manager, uh, all had lunch at Sid's uh, home, a private lunch, just the three of us. Uh, you know, everyone knew what was going to happen with, with Sid. But he was upbeat. Uh, he was just the same Sid he always was, which was kind and uh, very... Uh, uh very Sid had his feet on the ground he was a very approachable celebrity and i'm not just saying that because i'm not speaking ill of the dead because believe me there are people who i would never stop speaking ill of who have been long dead <laughs> but he was one of these people who was just genuinely uh, a good man and um i'll never forget the last We had a wonderful lunch and talked about all kinds of things and, you know, a little bit about 2049 and how pleased he was with, you know, how his Vegas uh, designs had come through on that picture. Um, But primarily it was just the personal chit chat of friends because Sid and I were friends. And my last memory of him is as I was leaving, he he got up to go into his office. He worked from home and um, he was still working up to the moment, pretty much, that he passed. And um, he left us early, a little early. And then Roger and I were talking for a while. And I said, well, I should go. And I get up and I poked my head into Sid's office. And there he was with his little rapidograph that he was drawing. And he was just sketching away. And I said, Sid, I'll see you later. And he said, me too, Paul. And a big smile. And that's my last memory of Sid Mead working and being friendly. and you know, And so that's a wonderful thing. Uh, and then of course Rutger, Rutger and I <laughs> um, it Rutger, Rutger and I had a very funny relationship I, we, we genuinely liked each other but Rutger loved to cause trouble and uh, in, in a in a kind of uh, childlike and uh, way not in a mean way you know but he liked to stir things up a bit and if you knew that about him and you came back at him you were fine and uh, he and I um, both had a, a very uh, strong love of the sea uh, because I grew up in a Navy family in, in Asia and had gone across the Pacific Ocean in the 50s and the 60s on three-week trips from uh, San Francisco to Manoa many times. And then I, in the early 70s, uh, one of my other jobs before I had an accident that physically impaired me so I couldn't do the job anymore. I used to be a commercial diver and I had a 40-foot workboat and I was diving in depths of 100 feet on what they call hookah rigs and Harvesting stuff by hand underwater off of Catalina Island for a year or so, and uh, so and Rooker was an old sailor, and you know he had been in the Dutch merchant marine, and he had a sailboat. And he and I went sailing a few times on his boat, and uh, so we had that. In fact, um, to give a plug, uh, the revised and expanded edition of uh, Future Noir, which has the uh, black and white photo of Harrison running across the rooftop, um, which by the way was my cover, which is the one I submitted to them as cover. I let them get away the first time on the original first edition with this star log type of collage, which I always hated. And uh, one of the things, another thing is that people don't know about me is I do have a bit of graphic professionalism in my resume. I was a CG supervisor on Robocop two. And also uh, I did a lot of paste up and uh, layout for magazines and newspapers. And so I had submitted a, a, a photo of Harrison and that classic mat shot dangling off the girder above the street with the, you know, the, the matte painting that Rocker Joffrey and Matthew Uretich had both done. And, uh, that was rejected by HarperCollins but picked up by all the foreign markets. So I've always been very involved in my books. I don't only see them as textual materials. I'm very, uh, diligent about the visuals and the packaging and all that. Anyway. So, um, Rutger and I, uh, Share that love for the ocean and the respect and knowing that it essentially always wants to kill you. And um, that is in uh, a little bit of dialogue is in future noir, the last edition where Richter starts grilling me he starts interviewing me and i keep trying to divert him and he keeps saying oh, no 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 we've talked so many times i want to hear about you no 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 we're here to talk about you Rutger. and he goes well i heard that you were a sailor and i know and your work boat was uh you know a 40 foot old chris craft wouldn't blah blah, blah 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 and it's in there you know because i didn't edit it and it's funny so we had that kind of intimacy and then for him to pass the way he did which was quietly and without any fanfare and uh but that's how he was, you know. He had this AIDS Foundation, the Starfish Foundation, for many years that most Blade Runner fans were unaware of. That he was, you know, helping people in the Seychelles Islands uh, who had AIDS, and he was putting a lot of money and effort into that. So he had a very altruistic side to him. So we lost him. We lost Van Gellis. We lost Larry Paul. You know, uh, we lost Brian. You know, James very early. Um, and, and Doug, uh Doug
2: Trumbull also recently. Oh, of
1: course, of course, yeah. Douglas Trumbull. And you know, so every one of those people I knew, and and in some cases very very quite well. So I'm now getting to that point in uh this timeline that happens to encompass my brief little existence with the billions of people behind me and the billions of people to come. Um, I'm at that point in my life where there are more deaths than births, And there are more moments of mournful reflection than there are of joyful anticipation. But that somehow all cues into Blade Runner, because Blade Runner is not a musical comedy. You know, (laughs) it's very melancholy. And it's really about, as I said in one of the essays that I wrote for a collection um, called uh, The Cyberpunk Nexus, Uh, Blade Runner is, in my opinion, essentially about death It's about entropy, the death of everything. And um, so now I find myself at a period in my life when that's coming home into my home almost daily. So, yeah. On the other hand, am I sitting around going, oh, you know, God, life is horrible. Life's always been horrible. (laughs) You know, no change there. Uh, I'm non-denominational, but the Buddhists have a wonderful saying. They say life is suffering. And yeah, but life can also be joyful. You know, life can be everything. And it really essentially hasn't changed in my 70 some years of life. Uh, I grew up under the shadow of the atomic bomb and I've seen nothing but warfare my entire life. I've seen nothing but a steady degradation in the environment. I've seen nothing but an ongoing uh, cautionary screaming from those in the know saying we're overpopulated. Our resources are dwindling. We're not doing this. We're not doing my entire timeline. Has been consumed with that. This is nothing new, folks. So, having laid all of that depression out in front of you, I would say that depression and despair are useless. I know I suffer from ongoing chronic depression. It's something I don't usually admit to, but it's something I've had my entire life. And, uh, but despair is useless because it just, what's the point? You know What is the point of complete and utter despair? What you have to do, and I think Blade Runner in its own odd way celebrates that, is live in the moment, grab those four years in terms of what the replicants have, or however many hours you have when you are in existence, and do the best you can. Do the best you can. Just accept what you have control over and ignore what you don't and just... Try not to do any harm. That's kind of the only wisdom I have after all these years. You know, try not to do any harm.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And I think one of the, the great themes of, you know, the original Blade Runner is to see Deckard kind of wasting away his life. He's just kind of there. He's not really present reading a newspaper and yeah. <laughs> then by the end he realizes through a series of events and then the death of Roy Batty that he needs to live. He needs to live a fuller life because life is short and uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a, an ongoing lesson for us like despite everything that's going on in the world, everything that's gone wrong, there's a lot of beauty here. There's a lot of joy. Oh, absolutely. Here. We just have to choose it and we have to be aware enough to choose it and, um, and not be bogged down by what media wants us to be bogged down by, whether it's uh, the political environment or, or even the, even uh, what's going on uh, in terms of climate change, which, of course, is very real and it's affecting us. At the same time, we can still experience joy and also realize um, that those things are real. And uh, I think it's choosing joy and choosing like uh, happiness or finding that in this environment is almost revolutionary because that's not what the narrative is. And I think that's why they made one are so beautiful.
1: Yes, but again, uh, and and not to hammer and repeat, but this is nothing new. Well, all we're all we're seeing now is that because the information systems have become so sophisticated, and because the uh, cyber world has become so compulsory and at the same time so divisive. Um, you know, there was, I've, I've quoted this thing endlessly, but there was a book in 1970 that was called Future Shock by a, a sociological philosopher named Alvin Toffler. And he not only predicted the Internet, he said, and this is 1970, that what was going to happen with the Internet was that it was not going to bring people together. It was going to push them all apart because everyone would have their own separate tribe and be able to speak only to the tribe and just self just in an echo chamber you would have no interaction between the tribes because why would you have to it would be so easy to just go over there and click on to whatever, you know, conspiracy group or, you know, political group or whatever, you know, and that's exactly where we are. And as far as the apocalyptic scenarios go with, uh, you know, the ecological collapse, in 1950, there was a very, very good book, which is still out there called Earth Abides uh, by, uh, I think, I wanna say Fred Mustard Stewart, but that, I don't think he's the author. But anyway, it's called Earth Abides. And it was what we would call, now call a crossover novel. It's essentially an apocalyptic science fiction book about a strain of measles that mutates and wipes out almost the entire population of the Earth. And it follows one man who happens to go off on a vacation in a cabin uh, outside of San Francisco. And he gets it, and he almost dies, but he's alone, and somehow he gets through it, barely. And he has to spend months recovering up there, and when he comes back, the city of San Francisco has collapsed. Everyone's dead. And it's already beginning to all of the infrastructure is gone. And the entire book is about this slow, painful, violent, awful, grotesque struggle to maintain some kind of just sustainability of and, and 1950. So, you know, we're talking 73 years ago, 72 years ago. None of this is new. The problem is, is we're oversaturated, you know, I mean, and, and it's very simple. No one can conceive of this because we're all addicted to this. It's very, it's quick and it's easy. This is the electronic fix, I call it. It's very easy to become so accepting of the varying, not only media outlets, but the varying, the varying camps, the varying, the varying principles of thought that are all swirling around there because communication has gotten so much more sophisticated and easy to tap into. To fall into the trap of making that your fix the day walk away walk away you know i mean i've walked i'm i'm one of the most political people you can think of i was in the 70s i was out in the street getting my head cracked open by police and tear gas by the governor of california i spent a lot of time in jail on weekends with lots of other people because of the vietnam war and i grew up in a military you know my father as i have said before was in military intelligence for the navy and i grew up knowing how the world worked on a very ugly level at a very early age. So I'm not a naive outsider. And yet I still find myself when I'm not being overwhelmed some days by just the sheer onslaught of awfulness. uh, I really find that life has not changed that much. It is still the same. The only anchors that we have, and this is going to sound terribly naive and simplistic, but really it's each other. We're social animals. We have a flaw in the DNA design. Uh, our, our, our tendency toward destruction has not balanced out with our tendency to create. They're both there, uh, you know, and evolution will do one of many things with us. Uh, evolution, by the way, is not a process of refinement. It's a process of starts and stops. People always think of evolution as something, well, you know, you, it keeps refining and refining. No. That's not how evolution works at all. Evolution says, all right, we'll have this line go over here. Whoop, that didn't work, bye. <laughs> and you can have I mean, over-simplify, you know? But yeah, you know, George Carlin used to call us the, the great comedian of failed species all the time, and we are. Um, but having said that, we also have these very positive and benign qualities, and it's up to you. It's up to you. It's it's, it's No one else is going to do this for you. You have to be your own skipper. You have to be you know, the person who decides if you're going to be an Eldon Tyrell or if you're going to be a Roy Batty or if you're going to be a you know, Rick Deckard or Rachel, it's up to you. You have the ultimate responsibility. What you have to do though, is you have to be open. You cannot close yourself in a closet and just listen to canned announcements that tell you what you think you wanna know. You have to think on your own and that can be very lonely, it can be very contentious, and at times, it can be dangerous. But if you want to live a full life, if you want to live a life of, of quality, and if you want to live a life of humility, you have to put yourself on the line. And uh, there are many ways of doing that. Sometimes it's as simple as saying no in a situation or walking away from something. Other times, it's like, uh, you know, uh, putting your life on the line. And so it's it's all up to you, you know. And so um, as bad as things are at this point in the human journey, um, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We really don't. I mean, we can forecast, we can do our graphs, but who saw this pandemic coming? Who thought that we'd actually be living Earth bites, you know, 70 years later? I mean, it's the same scenario, you know, it's a mutated virus. <laughs> so, you know, no one knows. So everyone take a breath. You know, relax. Go take a walk. You know, give your significant other a kiss. You know, sit down and listen to some music, you know, or, you know, just whatever you'd like to do, as long as it's not harmful to yourself or other people, because that's the caveat. That's the great caveat, because there's where we shade into the other part of the human equal disequilibrium, right? So it's up to you.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about the legacy of Blade Runner. And of course, we are now in the, like we had Black Lotus come out uh, last year, which was a 13 part series. There's been a lot of comics. Um, There are more comics coming. Some of them, or I think the next series is based off the character L from Black Lotus. And of course, the, the elephant in the room is the Amazon series, the 2099, which is this colossal series that they're tackling, which is... Um, serving as a follow-up to sequel to Blade Runner 2049. Uh, So what are are your thoughts on... Maybe.
1: Maybe. Let me say it to that last statement. Maybe.
0: Maybe it's a sequel to? Maybe. Okay. That's how they... The, and, and the no, I'm, I'm
1: I'm saying yeah I know I oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm purposely being a little tantalized
0: I hear you maybe, maybe.
1: Maybe, well that,
0: maybe. I think it'd be even better story or it be better if it wasn't connected but in light of these things happening um, in light of Alcon really trying to position this IP and again with the comics and black Lotus and everything that's 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 come and everything to come what are your thoughts about that in terms of the lasting legacy of Blade Runner
1: well I think Well, to begin, as a purist, and this is simply me speaking aesthetically and objectively from an artistic uh, standpoint. I wish they would leave sequels to someone else. Um, I wish there was no such thing as sequelitis, but there have always been franchises, always. Always. Uh, Planet of the Apes, you know, those were started in 1968 and ran up into, you know, ran into the ground by the mid 70s. So that's nothing new. However, uh, having said that, I was quite pleased that for 35 years, um, there really was no sequel to Blade Runner. Uh, it was a standalone. Uh, it hadn't been possibly diluted, polluted or corrupted or just turned into a you know simple cash cow. Um, I will say two things uh, up front, uh, both Cynthia sykes Yorkin and also Alcon I have nothing but admiration for because frankly I mean I've spoken to Cynthia I've been to her home she was gracious enough to uh, give me some time more than some time when these deals were coming together to get 2049 off the ground and uh, Alcon uh, while I do have some quibbles with uh, Black Lotus uh, primarily at on the scripting level um you know, some of the fans on Black Blackwater said, oh, you know, the animation, it's all, you know, mocap and all that. It's not very good. Well, look, you know, i that actually, a little bit of background. Uh, I grew up in... Uh, Partially, my brother was born in Japan in 1954. I worked as a Japanese co-producer of three television series from Tokyo from 1988 to 1992, hundreds of episodes, uh, lived in Japan for years, uh, know Japanese pop culture quite well and still do. Uh, talking, that's me. I'm, I'm Otaku. I'm, you know, I'm a family and uh, but also a professional. So. Um, People I don't think are generally aware that mocap is uh, in animation in uh, Japan is very common right now. You just don't see it over here. There's a tremendous output, but it always has been. Some of it gets over here. So there were some outcries about that. Black Lotus is the one, let's just say, of all of the things that Alcon has done in the Blade Runner universe so far, to my way of thinking, is the only one that didn't hit the mark. 2049, I think, is magnificent. I also am a big fan of the comics. I think that 2019 is good, 2029 is good, Blade Runner Origins is good, and Blade Runner 2039 is actually involved with love. You have the character from 2049 who is that wonderfully complicated uh, right-hand enforcer um, of uh, Jared Leto um she is uh one of the primary i've seen some of the advanced galleys of that and some of the art and it looks good and the storylines are good and i think you know i i'm a big fan of those comics i think they did quite well with them i think that they took the entire uh shared universe seriously i thought they kept up the main themes. I thought they did the hard-boiled film noir thing very, very well. But they at the same time, for instance, in Blade Runner, I think it's Origins, you know, they also kept things very uh, contemporary. I mean, you have a whole trans, you know, story in there and, uh, you know, and it's trans friendly. And so they've managed to remain contemporary without like just like completely diluting the franchise. Uh, And that's what it has become. And, you know, I think I can't remember if it was so or if it was uh, uh, Broderick Johnson of uh, Alcon, both of whom I've met, by the way, and are sincere in trying to bring, uh, you know, the best possible product out there. And I'm not I'm not employed by them. So I have no skin in that game. I'm just reacting as someone who has met them and and has been to their office recently, as a matter of fact, and uh, 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 know a bit about what's going on with 2099, but just a bit um i you know nothing but props i mean they are sincere about trying to do the best job that they can and not turn it into something like what unfortunately the star wars franchise the films became um but the franchise you have to put on your business hat and 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 not your fan hat not your cinema hat not your sin hat you have to look at it from a dollars and cents point of view and in the long term a production company At this point in Hollywood, well, there's no Hollywood anymore, but in this point in in international filmmaking, uh, you have to have some kind of continuation of a a product to make ultimately your company viable. And all of the big companies do this. They all do it. And it's become the model, whether we like it or not. And for the most part, believe me, I don't like it. I think that it's always a dilution of the originals. It just gets worse and worse and worse. You know, the... uh, the law of diminished returns kicks in. So having said that, I think that Alcon to their credit has maintained high standards. Now, 2099, which, you know, picks up 50 years after the fact and uh, Ridley is involved in um, is going to be a 10 episode run. Um, The uh, showrunner is uh, the same woman who, uh, you know, is responsible for shining girls and, you know, and, uh, the also. Halo. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the Halo, you know, uh, adaptations that were recently on and uh, you know, who knows again, who knows? Um, and as far as Ridley's involvement goes, he is involved. That's all I'll say. Um, but I do know that they are approaching it with the same degree of seriousness and integrity that they, uh, you know, went forward with on 2049. Having said that, I cannot say what's going to happen with the end product because we're—it's a long way down the road yet. Right? Uh, it's probably going to be starting relatively soon, um, but it is—it's a real thing, and uh, it's really going to happen. And uh, at least at this point. Uh, but one of the things you learn, especially as long as I was working in the industry and not just writing about it, is that <laughs> William Goldman famously said, "Nobody knows anything," but. It's also so many factors get in the way of not only The quality of production but just the the mounting of a production so many things go under before they even get born so who knows what's going to happen with 2099 at this point but considering the production entity and the fact that they knew that they had to start a franchise in order to remain a viable company and considering their past record of her science fiction like things like the expanse you know hey guys that's not a bad piece of science
0: fiction oh it's amazing
1: it's amazing Uh, yeah and that's Alcott, you know and so you know there's some you know there's there's a through line of uh you know artistic uh, striving there you know or at least you know serious commercial you know filmmaking as opposed to just fluff um so they have that on their their end but you know they would they made a very um realistic pragmatic move they said look we you know if we're going to remain a business and we and we were fortunate enough to get into the Blade Runner thing and believe me they worked at it um then we are going to go for it you know and, but in a but in a but in a, in a in a monitored and intelligent and adult way i mentioned Cynthia Sykes Yorkin Cynthia Sykes Yorkin more than any single individual is the reason why we have the continuation now of the blade runner story um she was bud yorkin's wife and bud yorkin famously did not want to have anything to do with continuing the blade runner story but he was not the only one uh jerry parencio who of course was the other depending on your point of view, either the financier or the villain <laughs> responsible for causing all the problems uh, artistically on the first Blade Runner. French Hill was a multi-billionaire who, you know, the Blade Runner franchise or the idea, but to him was just another asset, really. I mean, this is a guy who staged the Thriller in Manila, you know, the the, the uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, championship fight, in Manila in the seventies. And so Jerry was a heavy, heavy hitter. And, um, and it was Cynthia, uh, bud yorkin's uh, wife who for some period of time recognized what had been done with the original film and wanted to honor what had happened as opposed to simply turning it into a cash cow and she kept after bud and after bud and after bud and bud finally went to parencio and the way that that business arrangement was that parencio wanted to be bought out and they had had to come up, they being Cynthia and Bud, had to come up with a a very sweet deal in a very short period of time. And Cynthia was the person who put that, helped put that package together and get everyone together. And there are other people involved besides Warner Brothers and Alcon and the Blade Runner Partnership. Um, There's a Canadian company that was part of it, too. Um, But, you know, she is sort of the unsung hero. And she's kept her her involvement uh, back and behind the scenes. But, you know, big props, Blade Runner fans. Oh, this woman, which is interesting, a woman um, in these days of gender um, questioning and uh, identity and, uh, you know, uh, uh, thank God, feminism, you know, still being with us. And, and, you know, this awful, awful thing that we have in this country and the world of, you know, denigrating women and the whole minority thing, which Blade Runner also addresses uh, you know, she was very, very, very integral to getting what we saw come up on the screen in 2049. And because of that, then everything else that's come with Blade Runner. So Alcon and Cynthia Sykes-Jorgan, big shout out. These, these are people who are really doing good things, in my opinion. Now, if Blade Runner 2099 comes out and it's awful, well, (laughs) it's going to be awful, you know, (laughs) but on the other hand, we'll see, you know, I mean, uh, that would probably get us into 2049 i would think right
2: i was just about to go there actually if you'd like to and (laughs) and one other thing speaking of uh the legacy of alcon and cynthia sykes york and and others uh the blade runner rpg is officially shipping everybody we had the creative director on our last episode and because of covid and supply chains it was a little bit unclear if it was coming but i got an email from freely uh yesterday that it actually is shipping and so that's another huge fantastic you know yes. high level well, thing I've been, yeah, I've been following
1: yeah i've been following believe me i follow i i'm you know i don't know if they still use the term lurker uh but you know <laughs> in the digital world but you know i'm on believe me i study a lot of sites and uh i'm i'm plugged into a lot of different uh both uh shall we say more traditional and under the radar and very private information sources and uh you know i i haven't stopped Stockpiling information on this motion picture and its legacy, so I am aware of all the varying spin-offs. And uh, I even—I mean, you know—I've got—I can't tell you how many blaster replicas I've got here. <laughs> you know, you can never uh, have too many PKD uh, blasters? No. Uh, no, we can I've hold on to been. a couple of those for you. Yeah, people. you can share them. You know? <laughs> 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 yeah, I even have the Harrison Ford signature one, and you know, but I've got—I've got others too that go way back so anyway but that's just me you know i've been collecting for a while so what can i say i got i had a head start on a lot of people so that's all that (laughs) was (laughs) but
2: this rpg is another example of something that was very carefully considered and they took a lot of time on and it's finally coming out so the reason i'm um, bringing this up is to get back to 2049 something else which as you mentioned took 35 years to to come out what are your thoughts on 2049 and uh you know especially given the original movie
1: Oh, I loved it. Um, you know, I, you know, it's, I, it's safe for me to say now that uh, years before the actual release of the motion picture, or before the dribs and drabs of that very tightly secretive publicity campaign started to leak information about what this film was going to be concerned with and uh, its shape, um, I was already privy to uh, some information that had been kindly shared to me by varying people involved in 2049 and um so i was excited from the get-go because um a lot you know honestly really really had a lot to do with the input on the screenplay for that and uh although uh of course hampton um uh, everyone probably knows the story by now but uh, hampton uh, had been working on a collection of short stories which he collected under the title The Shape of the Final Dog. And uh, you can still get that. And uh, The Shape of the Final Dog itself is a Blade Runner story without any of the terms being used so he could dodge, you know, any kind of legal representation. Uh, But uh, he literally got a call out of the blue from Ridley and hadn't spoken to him for years while a page of that short story was in his, he still uses a typewriter, was in his typewriter. And uh, Ridley says, "Hey, you want to work on uh, another Blade Runner?" And he goes, uh, and "He goes, you got any ideas?" And he goes, "Sure." Wait a minute. He ran into the room and he started reading him what he was literally just writing. So how coincidental is that? I'm sure you've heard this story before, but that's a true story. And uh, you know, I mean, we talk about synchronicity. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, I was excited. Uh, and then when I heard, uh, you know, I was also aware of the ups and downs that went on behind the scenes uh, of the slow, torturous process of finally getting all the very parties to lay down their old grudges and their um, prior contracts and uh, preconceptions to move forward with this. But then as soon as I started to hear like, Buzz like uh, Denny, you know, being, you know, uh, associated with it, and uh and hampton you know uh, uh coming up with the treatment and uh which again i was aware of um i became more and more excited and then of course Denis was on a roll and still is uh he had uh not only done Sicario and Prisoners and Arrival, but I'm familiar with his French Canadian work uh, when he was doing small art films, and he's always been a bit of a provocateur. And so uh, I thought to myself, "Wow, this is really a good choice." And then when Roger Deakins became involved, and you know, and uh, so when all that happened. Uh, and I finally, I, I I was the plus one with Katie Haber at the cast and crew screening for Blade Runner 249 in L.A. So I was there when Broderick and uh, Andrew, uh, the producers, uh, were up on stage introducing it to a, it's a small screening room, uh, but it was all cast and crew. And it was, I'd been to the cast and crew screening of Blade Runner. And now I'm here at the class and crew screening, you know, 35 years later of Blade Runner 2049. It was really, it was very cool, just on the fanboy, you know, uh, thing. Uh, And uh, I remember watching it and going, oh, fuck me. Fuck me. I must have said that a 100 times because they, it is such a subtle, intelligent, moving, continuation of both the original story and the deepening of the themes and the characters. And yet there are all of these callbacks to the original. There are Easter eggs there, and none of it is overt. That's the other thing I loved about it, except the most overt thing about it is in terms of the first, uh, in, in referencing the first film, is when Kay is lying, dying on the steps in the snow at the end of 2049, and they cue the tears and rain. Musical sting from the first one. And it still brings a tear to your eye. <laughs> this is funny, uh, you know, mm-hmm. 35 years later. Uh, but um, uh, you know, what a magnet. So I saw it a bunch of times. And I have a very good friend, John Davison. Uh, he's one of my best friends. He's the guy who produced Robocop and Airplane and Starship Troopers. And he's a fan. He and I have known each other for donkey's years. We've known each other for decades and decades. We go to the movies together. And um, i said john i got to take you to see 2049 and john john has got a massive film collection uh, in fact uh, he supplies the academy of motion picture art and sciences but they're prints he and joe dante combined uh, have an incredible collection of 35 millimeter films that are stored in the academy vault and uh, so john is never at a loss of being able to see something when he wants to see it and uh, he tends not to go out as much to, to movies these days, mainly because they're no good. Um, but I said, uh, let's go see 249 He goes, is it as good as I've heard? And he's like I am. We were both so deep into the process for so long that now when a film comes out, we try to avoid all of the pre-publicity. We don't want to know anything going in. We want to be as blank slate as we can be because he and I are still the kids that, start to tingle and the hair stands up and the lights go down and the curtains open you know we're still in that state which is marvelous never lost that um but he his one proviso was i want to see it in imax and i said fine so it came to imax at uh grauman's or the amc or whatever you want to call the old chinese theater now because it keeps changing its name uh and we saw it in imax and uh, he said i want you to talk he's got a jersey accent i i don't want you to talk i don't want you to say anything i never do i'm the most silent movie going part you'll you'll ever go with it's afterwards that we talk and i said have i have i ever well, I don't and so we sat there for the two hours and a half whatever and uh, the lights came up and i stared at him and i said well and he had this look of utter astonishment on his face. He goes, "Who gave these people two hundred million dollars to make this beautiful art film?" You know, and I just laughed and I said, "That's what people said back in nineteen eighty-two when Blade Runner came out. Who who gave you know Ridley Scott twenty-nine million to make you know <laughs> the first Blade Runner?" So it was hilarious, and uh, he was he, he loved it as well. It's a very adult. It's a very serious. Uh, and and logical continuation i just i can i can you know i can go on on many levels performance technique uh, special effects direction script music it just all comes together and uh ryan Gosling is terrific in that film you know i mean he is it's one of his top performances and also harrison you know and uh, I, I i talked about all the subtle easter eggs um One that's not so subtle is when they when they visit Gaff. And uh, there's been speculation about whether he is a member of that retirement home or is actually maybe somebody who's employed at that retirement home. You know, he could be either one, at least from what you see on the screen. Uh, And he's still doing origami and he puts a sheep down, (laughs) which is a call out to the original source novel. of a stream of electric sheep, but is also like a lamb to a slaughter. Which is, you know, kind of uh, a very, very intellectual type of little prod there that, you know, because he was always signifying, you know, through visually, and after this little talk and and the little things that he drops during his dialogue gaff where he says that uh, there was something in his eyes. You know, and it, well, yeah, that was the whole thing about the debate about, you know, the decorat thing, you know, the, the reflective eyes of the replicates, you know, well, wait a minute, what's he saying? And he lies because he's the guy who let them escape and he's still keeping up that masquerade, you know, 40 years later and within the Blade Runner universe anyway. So, I mean, the continuation, the continuity, the thought, the care, man you know now some people complain they say it's too long it's too slow same thing that they said about the original blade runner i will concede that it is a bit self-indulgent at times i can see i i've done editing as well i can see my editor scissors come out in a couple of the scenes where i go oh you know really this is a bit self-indulgent this is a bit solipsistic here you know but we we get to tightened it up a little in fact when i called ridley uh right after uh it came out and uh, we were speaking about it and i've got him on tape talking about uh that was one of the first times he says it's a perfect film but it's too long that's his only negative that he has about it um i could stay in that world you know just as long as i did on the first one although the second world is so much bleaker (laughs) you know i mean it's horrifying you know um it flips so many of the first film's focuses though i mean the first film do you mind if i keep going like this because i've got a lot to say about 2049 and sure we want
0: to try and cut this at around five uh well five thirty 30 my time so
1: oh, okay so i have got 11 tonight? minutes huh okay no keep going yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah okay all right thank you guys you're you're very kind for for a guy in his dotage, you know, who has to go find his wigs and his jammies <laughs> and his, my where's my hot chocolate with my marshmallows, you know, fuck all that by the way. Um, <laughs> we live we live in such an age of society that's one of, that's been one of my lifelong rants. Um, uh, but in any event, um, for instance, um, the whole idea, uh, one of the underpinnings of the film noir genre, although. People use that term in a fast and loose sense because what we now identify is a group of films coming out post World War II, or just during the beginnings of World War II, like for instance, A Stranger on the Third Floor with Peter Laurie in 1940, which is many academics now say was the first film noir, or you know things like Detour with the you know the the, the minimalist uh, noir all the way up to the late 40s on location noirs like Naked City, or um, Oh, gosh, what's one with Richard Woodmark? A Night in the City. Uh, there's so many of them. Um, all of those tend to cast the city, in quotes, itself as a major character and a destructive, dark, oppressive, constrictive prison from which you cannot escape. And Blade Runner 2019 does that very well. It's, you know, people talk about that marvelous future society that's created in how grungy. Yes, but it's a, a, a 21st, at least in terms of the story, extension of the classic film noir trope of the city as an oppressive prison, a dark place, constantly raining, slick streets, dead ends, shadows, people standing in dark and, you know, I mean, you know, the, the whole expressionistic Noir feel is one of darkness and or as I call it, future noir, you know, uh, the dark future, black future, really, to be actually completely uh, correct in translating the French black in the sense of just no light. Uh, So they took that in Blade Runner 2019 and made the city a central character, just like all the other classic film noirs. Now, there were exceptions out of the past, uh, the Jacques Tourneur uh, film with uh, Robert Mitchum, <laughs> excuse me, uh, that came out uh, in the late 40s. Uh, that takes place, much of it outdoors in sunlight. And uh, there are others that do that as well. High Sierra is one uh, with Humphrey Bogart. Um, but for the most part, you know, you have people trapped like rats in these mazes, uh, scurrying down dark alleys, you know, with like danger and despair and their own failings and their own lack of character there's character defects leading them into bad decisions classic there's blade runner okay one aspect of it 2049 kind of flipped that a little because yes you do spend time in you know the la of 2049 which is just it's like beijing on a on the worst day imaginable you know i mean it is so there's that marvelous shot uh, uh, well, it's actually a, a, a whole sequence um, when uh, Kay uh, returns to the city after retiring Morton, Sapper Morton, and discovering the chest with what turns out to be Rachel's bones under the tree, where he's going back to the police headquarters and uh, he's skimming this unbelievable jumble of not only, you know, skyscrapers, but now everything is so congested, it's canyons, it's canyons that are so deep, and yet very little light anywhere else in this massive city, one that's completely rain smog and and snow encrusted and you know, under salt by the the ocean, they've had to build a seawall, you know. And so yes, they've got that aspect to it, but it opens up outside of the city, it opens up with him. Okay, you know, going into the outskirts and you see how denuded the earth has become. So yes, now we're in open spaces, but you're still trapped, which is interesting because it's thematically, it's still making sense because you're trapped in a dead end environment. You know, I mean, the the vegetation is gone. You have to raise grubs for protein. There's a lovely thought. Um, Neander Wallace has come up a way of you know, let's make uh, you know mealie worms. You know, that'll be for everybody. Yippee! Uh, okay, um, but it's 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 this con- logical continuation, and then you it opens up again when he goes to Las Vegas, which is this you know cinnamon cloaked. You know, radioactive miasma uh, with uh, hyper sexualized giant statues, which is like kind of the logical endpoint of Vegas, which has always been known as Sin City, except for that brief flirtation with it being family oriented, which was a real joke. Uh, you know, Vegas has always been about, you know, just going and getting drunk and, and doing things that you shouldn't do. Um Looking for trouble, which you should never do, by the way, because you you'll find it if you look for it hard enough. And uh, trouble is not a good thing to look for. Um, anyway, um, so you know it's interesting. Uh, Denis is a is is also an extremely intelligent man. Um, Hampton said it best to me once. He says, "Denis is such a is such a gentle, uh, a polite, you know, courteous guy with a core of steel." And yeah, he is. I've met him a couple of times now. And unfortunately, the last time I saw him was at uh, Sid Mead's uh, memorial, uh, his uh, funeral service. Uh, but Denis flew in, and uh, I flew in too, as a matter of fact. Um, but uh, he's he's a charming man, and uh, he's high, uber capable. Uh, he's also he's also part of us. He's a geek. There's a big part of him that's a geek, you know. And I say that in a in a in a, in a, in a not a pejorative, but in a positive sense. You know, everything that we love about being fans. He is, but he's also an art film director and he's also someone who knows human nature and he has definitely his own point of view and you can see it in film after film after film. And he was one of the, he was a perfect choice to orchestrate what is a very complicated story uh, and also is one about hope and the crushing of hope. The whole idea of Kay maybe being actually thinking that he might be this miracle child that was born from a replicant. And then him finding out, no, (laughs) in the worst way possible, you're not. But instead of being bitter, completely disillusioned by that, he fights back. It's the spark that drives him to rebel finally, you know. There's that marvelous. I mean, there are many things that move me in 2049, but one of my favorite sequences is after everything Kay has been through. And uh, Deckard has been kidnapped and subjected to that, in my opinion, rather second rate Rachel 2.0. That's not my favorite part of the film. Uh, <laughs> that's a, you know, I mean, I. That's I my get
0: favorite that, part of the film.
1: <laughs> is it? It is. Well, I, 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 I just, I don't know. It's more for psychological
0: yeah. reasons than it is physical no, reasons. No, no, no,
1: I get it. I get it. I get it in terms of narrative. And I think it's, uh, I, for me, it just doesn't work because, frankly, because of the effect. I, I There's an uncanny valley. You've heard that phrase before when, you know, the CG gets so close to, you know, reality that it becomes a little spooky. I just didn't think it looked like her or acted like her, even though, and, you know, they did use Sean's face, but they didn't use her voice and they didn't use, you know, the real Sean, you know, they used a model actress who, you know, substituted for the body. Sean was on set for three days, essentially, and just got scanned and laser, you know, mapped and all that kind of stuff and mocapped, And And uh, then, you know, they did their digital magic and it looks nothing to me like Rachel. I look at that. And also the the emotional, it, it, the scene doesn't work for me. I'm sorry. It just that's that's just it's one of the few. No, things I I hear you. I film, hear you. Uh, I'm not the only one that feels this way. I, this is what's interesting about Blade Runner 2049 is that there are still, just like there is in 2019, there are areas you can argue about. you know uh but that's just me it's one of the few moments that just doesn't work for me i think it's also a bit gratuitous but that that's just me um but um i boy did i lose the thread uh okay yes uh the moment that i just love i do love emotionally is that after everything Kay has been through finding out that he's not the chosen one you know being almost killed by love beaten to a pulp losing deckard having his you know the love of his life, which is a very interesting concept, an artificial human in love with a hologram, you know? (laughs) I mean, there's all kinds of thematic and weird philosophical reverberations going on in there. Um, But after all that, when he's walking along that causeway and there's that giant nude joy advertisement that uses his name and the look that comes into his eyes he says he that was one of my favorite moments of performance with Ryan Gosling, because you can see him it, without going over the top when he takes a bandage off his nose, saying, that's it. That's it. You know, that's the moment that breaks him. That's the moment when he rebels. That's the moment. And that has got such reverberations to me because it works on so many levels. So um, let me talk very quickly because we i want to get about this. There was a lot of. Um, Critiques of the presentation of women in 2049. There was a whole brouhaha uh, that went on uh, among critics and among some uh, feminist groups and uh, um, some uh, fans and uh, women that I knew, uh, saying, "Oh, yo, know, the women in this film are all treated. You know, I don't like the women that are in this movie." And my response is, "Well, it is not endorsing this." What it is doing is Blade Runner 2049, in my opinion, is reflecting and savagely repudiating the second class and objectification of women in present day America and in the world in general. You know, I mean, it. it, but people, then I say, but stop and think for a moment. Why is Wallace so obsessed with this? discovery about a replicant being able to give birth yes he can colonize yes he can now have an infinite supply of slaves back going through the manufacturing process and saving money but isn't it interesting that a man essentially is furious that he cannot attain the miracle of birth himself and people that i've talked to who have been open to that at least opening gambit will start to look at this film slightly differently and go wait a minute so, really, this whole film is resting on a feminine event about the miracle of birth, which is women, right? Now you could say, oh, well, now you're just talking about motherhood. No, 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 not at all. We're talking about the male frustration and the rage and the input, you know, and the whole patriarchy thing. It's all in there, you know? And, and so I find it. I think Denise said it something like that, that people may be upset about, you know, how I've depicted the women of Blade Runner 2049, but I wasn't talking about 2049, I was talking about today. And so I think that that's a very valid point, you know? And plus, you know, like the, the performances and uh, Mackenzie Davis, who I haven't mentioned yet, she's terrific. All of the women in that are terrific, very strong characters, very strong. And uh, the men are kind of schlubs. <laughs> you know, until they finally turn. And let's face it, all of the men's stories are connected to our are, are, are inter- our, are, are essentially pivot around the relationships they've had with the women in their lives. Deckard in terms of Rachel, Kay in terms of his holographic lover. You know, so it's uh, you know joy, love. I mean, also the way that they're named—a subtle kind of clue, you know, about how objectified these artificial women have become. Um, the sex club that's there across from the noodle bar, where you can just walk in off the street and have sex with a stranger—which was the whole idea behind that—you um, know, those are intentional. Those are those are those are condemnations. They're not endorsements. So I just wanted to make that clear, because I think that there's a misunderstanding on some viewers' parts uh, that uh, that for some reason this is an anti-woman film, or even worse, it's a stereotypical rendition of women. I don't think so at all.
0: And we've talked there. about this on the show before in terms of 2049 really is a film about Rachel. If you get yeah, of course. It. Like that's of the course. film completely revolves around her from essentially beginning to end. Now, of course, we have Kay as the guide, but every, she's the the name that's on everyone's lips. She's absolutely her and her daughter, her child, are what everyone's looking for. She is the key, as as uh, or she, yeah, she, is she the key? I think Um Wallace says, but yeah, yes, so, yeah. So so yeah. we're actually gonna have a discussion about depiction of women in both films eventually because we feel like it's a good yeah,
1: we're
2: prepping that it, right now yeah it's, it's yeah it's, well
1: then it's, i'm ahead of the curve once again
2: yes you are yes you are
1: <laughs> no you know what's also fantastic is that uh the subtlety and also the um harsh reality um you know uh deckard uh, has uh lost his daughter and uh, interestingly enough the child is female so there's another one um but um also Kay is on the search that he thinks to validate his belief that he is the chosen one uh and it turns out it's not that it's Staline, uh dr Staline, who uh, ironically enough is the person who implants artificial memories and you know comes up with them so that's a whole reverberation right there but the very last shot in the film is well there's two things going on isn't it interesting that this aberration this biological impossibility has a genetic defect that makes her be completely confined and cut off from contact physical contact with other people there's a whole statement right there there's there's rich food for thought but the very last shot in the film does he touch her when deckard finally he just puts his hand on the glass and there's a glass wall separating him still from his daughter so it's a reunion without an embrace, and that I find very moving. And it's the perfect way. I mean, I remember when I first saw it. I think I, I, I tend not to think in films because that ruins it. But I remember thinking, if it ends right here, it's perfect. And bingo, it ended right there. And I went, "Yo, all right, you know." So there, it's a very, very, very rich film. You know, just just a fascinating, fascinating move. And But also, isn't it interesting that in the first movie that, you know, you essentially had human characters uh, who were supposedly, well, you know, we can play around with decker being human forever. Um, but... Uh, that you know the primary uh, ensemble even though you have these four replicants was mostly human and now they've all been relegated to secondary status by 2049 and it's right up front that we're going to just go into the replicant world and so that was a big step forward you know and and also look at look at how it deepens um, Harrison Ford's character Deckard you know, they're the subtle callbacks to his alcoholism. When you get there to Vegas, he's got every bottle of scotch in the world. <laughs> he still drinks too much. He even feeds his dog. You know, um, the thing that the wonderful thing about, uh, you know, whether he is or not a replicant, where K, when the dog comes out of the shadows and says, is it real? And and Harrison Ford says, I don't know. Why don't you ask it? Which is a marvelous, you know, what an in-joke. You know, that's just wonderful. Uh, uh, so there's so many, uh, I could go on about this film, but yeah, uh, you know, those two, um, the comics and, uh, hopefully 2099, you know, unlike many, many other franchises, I'm, I am glad that it took 35 years for it to sit alone, the original Blade Runner and, uh, essentially world in its own beautiful orbit and be able to pull others into that dark and yet fascinating and, and, and so complex and moving world. Um, but, uh, there was a man who I heard interviewed on TV a while back and he's in his nineties and he works at Nathan's hot dog stand on Coney Island. And he has been there for decades. He, he's one of the cooks. That's all he does. He cooks hot dogs at Nathan's right. Beautiful bit of a philosopher and uh, just a working man i shouldn't say just uh, the world is composed of working people um uh, and they said it well you're 92 or three at that point and they said "Do you have a philosophy and he goes well i guess <laughs> i love this they go what is it he goes things change they don't get better apply that to the blade runner universe
2: yeah that's something to, to chew on and yeah. i don't mean a hot dog as you as you were talking i was thinking uh a, a pretty common thing that we hear about on the show and something that i've talked about quite a bit is the feeling of inevitability as 2049 ends how like uh, you're watching it and we get the tears and rain cue and we're like oh this has to be the ending of the movie but like where is it like where is it and like please don't let it happen too soon because i'm not ready to leave and then as the hands go up we all have that moment where we realize, in some intuitive sense deep in our lizard brain, this is the end. And when it ends, it's like this a huge, like, breathless moment because it feels. And, and I think that's, that's because of who Denny is as a filmmaker. Oh, absolutely. And who Joe Walker is as an editor. I think that they're very yeah. intuitive, right? And they reshape. Things oh,
1: absolutely. A- well, well, it's also it's 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 also an earned emotion from a building narrative arc, right? I mean, you know, it's all been moving towards that the whole the whole film you know this there's reunion but the reunion is so complex and so you know fraught with so many different strands of that plot and uh you know uh the, it it really is like real class storytelling you know at, at the simplest level i mean you know you it's people that if you allow yourself because i know i still hear it's so funny i still hear people say the same thing they said about the original blade runner oh it's too slow oh it's okay you know eh, i couldn't get into it you know eh, it's kind of depressing Okay. I heard that 40 years ago, you know, and that's fine. You know, that's you, you know, but then there are us, uh, who, you know, have always, uh, for whatever reasons, been able to resonate uh, with what the film is not only saying, but showing us. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just remarkable that in this early part of the 21st century, when so much has been diluted and degraded and, uh, downgraded and just uh, essentially corrupted in terms of entertainment even just entertainment not not art uh you'll notice i've kept the word art out of this discussion pretty frequently but you know both of those films are popular art uh pop art at their best and um that is so difficult to pull off in any time but especially now and especially at 200 million dollars i mean that just cracks me up you know that But I, you know, they did it and thank God they did it. Thank God they did. it. So let's hope that, you know, that uh, it'll transfer over to a 10 series, you know, 10 episode arc. You know, there's still good science fiction out there. Have you been watching The Peripheral?
2: oh yeah
1: of course <laughs> yeah it is difficult Yeah, you know, no. my wife and i are, uh by choice have been childless and uh so yeah but uh yeah i know what you mean um but i i mean it's aunt, good though you uh, recommend yeah. it oh absolutely yeah, yeah. i mean I, it's still uh i think they've had five episodes and uh yeah, and unfortunately you know it's um There are very few of these limited streaming series that uh, can maintain the quality through every episode, but that's to be expected. It's episodic television in a sense, you know, if you, you know, back in the golden age, so-called, or back in the olden times of yore when you actually had to get up and change a big clunky thing that turned the three channels. Um, You know, you had hundreds of episodes of a series, and obviously you're just going to have days when everybody's burned out or, you know, the wrong writer gets it or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, there's a varying in quality. But um, it's based, you know, Gibson, uh, it's based on a a Bill Gibson, William Gibson novel, and uh, the peripheral. And uh, Gibson has been up and down in his literary career. Um, But this, the last time, uh, which this is based on, is a very interesting book. And it's, in terms of of creating interesting science fiction, um, would you agree, Jamie, that it really accomplishes that in terms of, you know, uh, uh, just being a good science fiction piece? Yes,
0: Yes. Uh, and I judge these things on their uniqueness, and is it a different story? I've not seen anything like this before. Of course, there are other science fiction books and shows which deal with elements of what we're seeing, but... The peripheral is a real gathering together of a lot of ideas to yes. make something that's very succinct. And William Gibson uh. just knocks it out of the park. I know it's based off of a book. It's amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, too. But then there, you know, there are, uh, as a horror fan, I know we're going off topic here, but... Uh, You know, Guillermo del Toro's uh, uh, Cabinet Curiosities, um, which had come out, which is obviously a night gallery kind of like a template Mm -hmm. that they use, the old Rod Sterling show. Um, There is one episode in there which is based on one of my favorite authors uh, who is very little known uh, within the uh, horror field called Michael Shea, S-H-E-A, and it's called The Autopsy and the autopsy in the cabinet of curiosities, you talk about knocking it out of the park. You want to yes. see horror? You Amazing want to see episode. cosmic? Yeah, yeah. Don't you think? Uh, yeah, it really works. Oh, yeah. great. Well, I would disagree. I would say that I would there disagree, some, too. I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, there's there's some there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what I was saying. It's OK to have clunkers. It's, you know, expected. Um, but we do live, uh, you know, interestingly enough, just maybe to wrap this up in, uh, in a way. Um, we do live, The uh, context is everything. Remember in 1982 when Blade Runner came out, it was only five years since the release of uh, Star Wars, a new hope, and uh, which of course was the sea change. But it was also, let's see, it was also uh, approximately 14 years since uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And so all of this had been moving towards this, sudden explosion of these A-list studio productions that normally were B and C or Z grade material. The third film on a triple bill, right? The cheapest in the you know bunch was usually the science fiction or the horror movie. Then it all got flipped. We all know this. Um, but still, it was very thin on the ground. Now you have this tsunami of choice. And um, there is so much content, as they say. I hate that word. There are so much, um, there are so much endeavors, productions, uh, attempts out there. I'm trying to find a word. I just hate content creator. You know, I'm a writer. Fuck you, content creator. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's we can go too far with changing. Light. Well, no, now I'm sounding old. Um, anyway, um, another rant. Uh, it, there is just so much to choose from, and yet qualitatively, I think if you probably were to break it down uh, with an AI, you would see that the proportion of good stuff to the bad stuff and the mediocre stuff is roughly the same as it was 40 years ago, even though there was a lot less of it. Yes, there are really good things now, you know, a lot of them, but there's a lot more stuff. And you know, for every good things, there's 300 bad things, you know, that that just disappear quickly. So we kind of are living you know, geek culture has had a lot to do with being able to obviously uh, make the things that I grew up with as a child that very few people were into, such as horror, science fiction, fantasy, but also, you know, serious literature and art films and so forth and so on, and music, um, was, was not available. And now we're saturated with it. And so um, we're very lucky. We're very fortunate. Unfortunately, this too will pass. And, you know, eventually, I mean, people are already tired of the MCU. You know, I, I, you know, yeah, okay. Wakanda, you know, forever did great. And, you know, I saw it and uh, I thought it had some interesting ideas, but it was tired compared to the first film. Sequel, yeah, it already set in. I think the best thing about it is the music. I think the soundtrack is spectacular. Uh, But, um, you know, um, Blade Runner, through all of this, has persisted, continued, maintained, generated, you know, replicating children. Uh, Yeah, it's very, very fascinating how these things work. I just wish Phil Dick was still around, you know. He didn't even get to see the original release. It's just heartbreaking. I liked Phil. Phil Phil was a complicated man, and uh, he generated complicated reactions from people, but my interactions and relationships with him were on the main, always positive and uh, fascinating. And it just, isn't it the way of the world that the one person most responsible for creating this topic in this world, in this world building we've been discussing, didn't even get to see the first home run, you know? Yeah. yeah. Too bad, Um, too bad.
0: I know we could probably talk for forever. Definitely know that you could (laughs) because we're talkers (laughs) too. Um, But um, I feel like we should probably wrap this up. Um, I I know that there's, especially with Blade Runner 2099 coming out, probably, I would imagine it will probably be in sometime in 2024 because this year is the big production year for it. They're starting uh, shooting it this spring or actually a little earlier than that. So there will be so much more for us to talk about. But With that being said, we are always honored to have you on our show, Paul. You are oh, well, a,
1: listen, a uh, thank well. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, well, listen. You know, uh, again, um, I, I I've been known to <laughs> appear on multiple outlets, and uh, you have always, uh, you being the collective, you of shoulder of Orion in terms of. What is out there in podcasting about Blade Runner uh, is the gold standard, and you guys just get better and better and better. And it's always uh, a personal joy to be able to discuss and scratch away at certain layers that I simply have not given the chance to do on other places and with other people so you guys you know keep it up man and i, I listen to i've listened to quite a few of your podcasts by the way quite a few and so uh, keep up the good work keep up the good work
2: thank you paul that means so much to us thank, and thank you for all you do for fans around the world thank you
1: oh you're yes, welcome hey you. we're all we're all we're all fans what can i say
2: we are indeed <laughs> same, fine,
1: brother. same tribe
0: well uh thanks for listening everyone and uh we will be back with uh, another episode of shoulder Orion the blade runner podcast and happy officially 40 years
2: i think this is probably the last new blade runner 40 year episode we'll be doing this year so
1: happy and honored honored to be a part of it thank you guys thank you take care
0: If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.